morning, beloved. Well, BTM was asking uh, what your favorite animated character was, uh, and so uh, recalling my childhood, I did not get to watch a lot of cartoons, um, but I, th- I had to say Batman uh, for mine. Anybody else? Nobody else. Wow. All right. Well, as a child, we didn't, we didn't watch TV much, um, but one thing we did get to do was watch movies, like, you know, old school VCR, plug that bad boy in, all that stuff. Um, but early in my childhood, the, the Little Mermaid came out. Anybody know the Little Mermaid? Yeah? So I have a sister who's a few years older than I am, but, like, that was her movie. She knew every line of it. She would sing all the songs. She loved The Little Mermaid. And I don't honestly know that I ever have watched it from start to finish. Um, but she watched it enough that like, I'm sure I have the, the gist of the story, so to speak. Uh, probably watched the entirety of it just in clips at different times that I would come in the room or whatever. Um, but if you're not familiar with the, the major storyline of The Little Mermaid, there's a mermaid who lives in an underwater kingdom. And she uh, goes to the surface one day to see the humans. And there's a ship and there's a storm. Uh, prince falls out, nearly drowns. She saves him, and she's like singing to him as he comes to, and then she flees, but he remembers he's been rescued by this mermaid that was so beautiful, and uh, he doesn't know that she's a mermaid, actually, uh, but she flees, so he knows her voice, and so he's like on this desperate search to find this this girl that's like, he's going to marry her. She'll be the princess and all this stuff, so it's this great love story, um, and like ultimately, it's a happily ever after kind of story. You know how Disney movies tend to go. Um, but recently, I heard a guy on a podcast talking about this story and kind of brought up some questions and some critiques that I had never really considered. And so this is not to bash the story, but just some thoughts, some questions are like, what is this? They're like, there's a female who is utterly powerless the entire movie to do anything positive for herself. And so when she's helpless, in order to finally get some kind of advantage, it comes at the cost of her voice. Like, she has to give up her voice in order to have any kind of advantage in the world. That the the evil queen takes her voice so that she can then have legs, and now she has three days to have true love's kiss and all this stuff. Otherwise, like, she's done. She's going to be the slave of this queen, this evil Ursula, the, the, like, sea witch and all this stuff. And so it's just this mad thing. And then King Triton is actually Ariel's father. She's a princess also. Like, this is crazy. And so King Triton, a merman, he has to step in at the last minute because Ariel is now going to be the slave for all of eternity to Queen Ursula, lost her voice, all this stuff. And so like, there's all this madness. But King Triton finally steps in to confront Queen Ursula as Queen Ursula is disguised and she's going to steal the prince forever and all this stuff. So it's just this wild story. And then again, helpless little mermaid is like at the mercy of everyone. Like, so everyone else is doing all this stuff. It all works out. Um, but the other thing that really struck me is that King Triton, um, in this beautiful moment, sacrifices himself. That like, instead of his daughter Ariel being enslaved forever, he takes her place. And so taking her place, Queen Ursula then turns him into a polyp. Like he's this tiny, helpless little polyp. Um, but then the Prince Charming, I don't even know the guy's name, he ends up like destroying the witch and so the curse is reversed and all this stuff and King Triton no longer is a polyp, he turns back into a merman and what you realize, there are thousands of other polyps and they're all coming back to be mer people. And you think in that moment, wait a second, King Triton knew this witch, like he exiled her some time ago and thousands of the people under his rule and reign, his protection, have been turned into polyps, and he cared nothing about them until his own daughter, royalty, is suddenly endangered. And now it's worth confronting. 
So you have like all these things happening where it's like, oh, like, is this okay? Like, oh, I don't know. Like, this is just the, what a wild story. Um, but it, it really begs the question, like, if that's when he decides to step in and we're like, I don't know if that's okay. Like, I hope if I have a king, like, that he would come fight for me even though I'm a nobody. But like, all these questions beg the question now of us today in our culture, in our climate, all that is the last two years, but really all of life for all of humanity throughout history, when do you decide that it's actually worth it to confront someone? When is it worth it to step into conflict, to confront someone? And how do you determine when that's actually going to be good or necessary to confront someone? Because man, I sure hope as followers of Jesus that we're not just like chomping at the bit, like I want to get into a fight. Like, let's go. He called us to be peacemakers. That love is, is patient. It's long-suffering. So when do we actually say, you know what, actually it's time to stand up and fight for something, to enter into conflict. I do a lot of marital counseling where like, people come in like, oh, we're going to get married, we're so excited, and like, okay, tell me about the fights that you've had so far. And like, there's always this kind of tendency, like, oh, we don't really fight that much. Like, we had a couple silly things, like minor things. Like, no, you, you, you should be fighting. Like, sociologically, conflict is healthy if it's handled rightly. You are still like, yes, beautifully to become one flesh, and yet you are people with preferences and opinions and all that stuff. And so you need to be able to manage that conflict in a healthy way that leads to healthy effects and consequences, all that stuff. Like there is a healthy way to have disagreement. There's a healthy way to step into confrontation. And so we need to explore that. So when do you? When do you decide it's time to stand up and actually take a stand here and say no or whatever it is? We, we really need to wrestle with that. So we are in Galatians chapter two. If you wanna make your copy of scripture ready, we're gonna be talking about that. Uh, where does that line come and what does it look like when it's time to stand up, when we enter into confrontation, into conflict? And so as you're turning to Galatians chapter two to kind of recap where we've been and where we're headed, um, we started this letter. This is a letter from Paul to the church around Galatia. And so this is a region. Um, and so Paul was part of planting these churches. And so Paul delivered the gospel to them, the good news that God so loves this world that he sent his son to die for us, to take our place on a cross, to take our consequence, all of our shame, everything that sin has brought on us, that we deserve justice. We deserve the wrath of God. And yet God in grace loves us so much that he says, I'll take your place. And so the son of God died and then he rose again victorious and is inviting us to follow him in faith, to trust him as our savior, to confess him as Lord and live our life for his glory, not for our own. And so that is the call of the gospel that there's now freedom in life. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has come. And so we live under his rule and reign, seeing that push forward. And we've, given, we've been given a mission to share this hope with the whole world to step into justice and mercy, but always pointing to this gospel, the ultimate proof of God being just and merciful, that there is good news, there is the gospel. And so Paul delivered that, churches are growing, and then something happened. So Paul starts this letter with his introduction, it's his greeting, and we looked at how that is gospel identity, that the way that Paul saw himself and his recipients was, it's all gotta be defined by the gospel. See who you are in light of who God is and what he has done for you. That's how we must see ourselves. And we're always trying to answer that question, who am I? You know, you think back to the passion narrative that Jesus has been arrested. And there comes this point that like brings tears to my eyes every time I read it, where the guards, these Roman guards, have put a bag over the face of Jesus. 
and they're striking him in the face, punching him in the face, and they're saying, prophesy, who hit you? Which is just so ironic to think, here is a human punching the face of the creator and asking the question, who am I? Like it hits on so many different levels that we should be asking our creator who designed us, like you know better than anyone, who am I? And so Paul is saying the gospel tells you who you are. Don't miss that. And so he launches into it. This is who I am. This is who you are. In light of the gospel, it's gospel identity. And then he gives first remarks. This is where it's like he changes the typical Pauline pattern in his letters. And usually he'd go into a prayer of thanksgiving. But instead he's like, no, what are you guys doing? What is happening? Like, I'm so shocked. I'm amazed that you would turn away from him who called you in grace. He's confronting them already. Like, what is happening? There is no other gospel. Why would you turn from the gospel that I delivered to you? And so we see gospel centrality. The gospel must remain central. And then he starts this autobiographical portion of the letter. And so he starts telling his story. And using his own personal story, what he's doing is he's building a defense. Because the people who are propagating a false gospel, they're trying to corrupt the true gospel that he had already delivered, they're trying to undermine him. And so he now needs to defend himself and the gospel that he delivered as an apostle. And so he starts that by telling his story and he shows us gospel reliability. And then we move to last week, what we covered. He's continuing the autobiographical portion of this letter. And as he's continuing to tell the story of what happened, we see how he goes to Jerusalem and he's like, hey, Titus, this Greek guy, you're a Gentile. You've not been circumcised. Come here. Like, this is going to be kind of a case study. Nobody here that is recognized as a pillar of the church says you need to be circumcised. Let's make sure we're all in agreement. What is the gospel? Like, yeah, shake hands. The right hand of fellowship, you're going to the Gentiles. We're going to the Jews. This is beautiful. We're preaching the same gospel. And so Paul is showing, like, the gospel brings about community. It's gospel community. And so today, we're continuing in this autobiographical portion. On the heels of that, that Paul is in this defense of the gospel and his apostleship, and he's telling a story of some things that have happened over the course of years, if not decades. Um, But here we go. We're in chapter 2, verse 11. So verse 11, it says, Paul speaking here again, but when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Like, hold on, hit the brakes, pump the brakes now. Something's wrong here. We just went from Cephas, Peter, he's one of these guys back in Jerusalem. Like, Paul went to Jerusalem and he's like, let's make sure that we're all clear. What is the gospel? Yeah, that's, we're, we're preaching the same gospel here. Right hand of fellowship, gospel community, this is beautiful. Even as we go to different regions and people of the world, it's the same gospel bringing us all into the family of God. And so this unity, it's beautiful. And how here we are. And Paul's like, well, there came a time when Peter actually came to Antioch. And I got in his face. Because <laughs> he stood condemned. Like, whoa, 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 what happened to gospel community, Paul? Like, Peter shows up and now you're like, no, nah, I'm going to get in your face, man. This is jacked up. You're condemned. You stand condemned. What is wrong here? These are strong words when he's just talking about the whole right hand of fellowship thing. So what happened to where Paul has changed his tone and now in a different city, Paul's like, no, 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 Peter, we're going to go at it. Here we go. So verse 12, we keep going. He says, for he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Ah, So this is why Paul's like, I'm gonna get in your face, Peter. You stand condemned, man. Because you used to be cool with this. You used to always eat with the Gentiles. Everything was great. Gospel community. 
We are all here by the grace of God. None of us has earned this by our works, our, our pedigree, like what race or nationality, or none of that matters. We all come here as broken sinners and there's a savior who in mercy and grace says, you're welcome here. I love you. And so Paul's like, what happened, bro? You used to eat with everybody. And then these guys come from James. James was the lead pastor, so to speak, of Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus, likely. And so some people come from Jerusalem of the circumcision party. And so these are ethnic Jews. And so they have a whole life of following the law, learning the law, the Torah, all this stuff of like, this is what you are to do to be clean, to be holy and all this stuff. And now they show up and Peter's here in town. These guys from James come and Peter's like, whoa, 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 actually, I'm gonna scoot on down. Can't sit, seat's taken, right? Can't be here with you guys, sorry. I'm gonna come over here with the other Jews. And Paul's like, what are you doing? This is madness. This is crazy. So he continues on. Uh, actually, before, before we go on, I, I realize I need to give you some context. If, you, if you're not familiar with why um, the Jews were not supposed to eat with the Gentiles, um, this is part of the, the law given in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, um, throughout the Torah, that there's this clean, this clean and unclean kind of tension of if you do this, you are clean. If you do this or touch this or associate with this, then you can become unclean. And so to enter into the temple, to do sacrifice, to perform these religious rites and all the offerings, everything else, like to be in communion with God, you need to take care of what has made you unclean. And so there's always this tension for the Jews under the law of, well, if I touch a dead carcass, then I'm unclean. And so like my, my wife dies and I like hug her body, like in great sorrow and grief. And then suddenly I'm unclean. Like, oh, like that feels awful. But what do I need to do? I have to wait a specific time. I need to wash in a specific way. And then I am made clean again and I can continue on in the fellowship and, and the offering of praises and all that stuff at the temple. So they're always at this tension, but one of them had to, or a lot of them had to do with their diet. So you've probably heard of kosher diets. Um, so kosher diets are things that are acceptable by the Torah or the, the Levitical law, so to speak. So the things that they're allowed to eat. You're not allowed to eat things that chew the cud. You're not allowed, so pork, like barbecue, no, that's a no-go in a kosher diet. Um, there are different things that, that you're allowed to eat and not allowed to eat. And also related to that is who you eat with. And so the idea for Jews of sharing a meal with a Gentile was to mix clean and unclean. And what happens to something that was clean when it encounters something unclean? It's contaminated. That's now it becomes unclean. And so we're not going to eat with them because their diet's different. They're different. And so we're going to have a strict separation here. And so that's what Peter is falling into is like, I remember all that stuff. And here are some guys coming that seem to be heavily swayed by that. Like, no, 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 we don't mix here. And so Peter goes from like, no, it's all cool. We don't need to worry about all that stuff anymore. And we know from the book of Acts that he knows this stuff at this point. He knows that it is okay to eat with the Gentiles and to have barbecue and everything else. And yet, here he is like, oh, wait, these guys, they, they might not get that. Oh, let's go ahead and create a little bit of separation here because I don't want to be associated with unclean. People might think that I'm unclean and like, I'm not unclean. So you have all of these tensions going on. So now with that context, verse 13. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Oh, that's hypocrisy. 
Nobody likes hypocrisy. I open any form of social media and scroll for just a little bit, and you'll see somebody decrying someone as a hypocrite, whether they use that word or not. We love to point out and decry hypocrisy. We love it. Like, we get pretty hyped when we see hypocrisy. Um, speaking of hyped, uh, I, I was a student pastor for some years, and I took, I took a bunch of kids to a camp, and the camp had big sessions in this large arena, and it was like super exciting. You got tons of people, and like the whole shebang, it's everything that's supposed to be, blah, like it's wild. Um, but one of the things they did to just make it even more wild, which I don't know why that's ever a thing for teenagers, but while we were in there, they, they had this guy come out in a costume. It was a full bear costume and like silly, like something you'd see at a theme park, whatever, like comical looking bear costume. But every time he came out, like regardless of what's happening in the session, like it could be a serious moment where like everybody's kind of calm, like we're transitioning from a prayer or something. But then this bear comes out and the bear is known as Chaos Bear. And so anytime the bear shows up, the DJ would just like through the roof, the volume goes up and lights, strobe lights, everything like smoke, like everything just erupts and everyone is supposed to just start going crazy dancing. Like the chaos bear brings chaos with him. And so of course, that's like everyone's favorite part of the camp. It's like, yeah, a reason for chaos, the chaos bear. We all go wild every time he shows up and he would just like dance around and 10 seconds later, he'd disappear through some little portal or something. And like he's gone and the room goes back to normal and you're supposed to pretend like it never happened. Just chaos bear shows up, go crazy, and then chaos bear leaves, everything's normal, we continue on. And so it was this kind of like fun thing, but everybody fell in love with him. And then the speaker for one of the sessions, he's in the middle of his sermon, and he's like, all right, we're gonna break from what's normal. I know like kind of fourth wall here. He's like, we're not going to go crazy, okay, for just a moment, but chaos bear is going to come out. We're not going to go crazy. I just, I just want you to look at him. So Chaos Bear comes out and all the kids would go, I don't know, like maybe I'm supposed to go crazy, but the lights and everything aren't doing it. And so Chaos Bear comes out and he's standing on the stage and he's like, hey, what is this? And we're like, Chaos Bear. And then he's like, okay, bear? No, look at this. And they have a trainer come out with a legit bear standing on two legs, comes walking up the steps and it's like real. Like there's no denying this is a real bear and that's a real trainer and they probably have people with like, harpoons or something ready to go. Like, that's, that's a real bear. And so, Trank, no, you gotta go for a harpoon. So, I don't trust that. Anyway, so now he's standing there. He's got chaos bear on one side of the stage and a real bear on the other side of the stage. And he's like, ladies and gentlemen, which one is a real bear? Like, there's no denying. That's a real bear. And the speaker is like, he speaks all over the world. Uh, but apparently he didn't ask enough questions before. They like, can I come touch him? The trainer's like, no. <laughs> like, even with the trainer there, he's like, it's a real bear. Don't even get close to it. <laughs> so the real bear, like, it just hit in that moment. Like, you can say you were one thing, but you know when it's the real thing. And that's what's happening. Peter, what are you doing? You know who you are, but you're acting in this way. And you acting in this way is actually pulling other people to start acting in this way. Barnabas has been pulled aside by you. Barnabas has been led astray. Barnabas in the early church, his name means son of encouragement. He's the guy who sold a field at the beginning in the book of Acts. He's like, look, I've got a field. I don't need it. Like, I'd rather see the kingdom of God advance. That's like one of you saying, I have a house. I don't actually need this house. 
I'm going to sell it. Hey, pastors of beloved, like, here's $300,000. Can you use this for the kingdom of God? I was like, yes and amen. <laughs> like, we will, we will build a building for Derek and Ray. Like, we would love to just build them one outright before we ever have a building. Let's go do that. Like, there's so many things like, yes, we could do that. That was Barnabas, the guy who did that. Like, could you imagine if somebody did that right now? Just like, I have a house. I, I don't need it. But I'd really love the glory of God to expand and cover this earth. So can we, can we use that money to do this? Like, how encouraging would that be to us if we heard that? And so this guy becomes known as the encourager. Like, this guy will bring encouragement. This guy is who showed up and actually introduced Paul to the apostles back in Jerusalem. This guy is like, hey, I know he used to kill us. Like literally he was trying to kill us. But I'm telling you, I'll vouch for him. He's one of us. He loves Jesus. And so that guy has now been led astray by the hypocrisy of Peter. Like you're not acting in step with the gospel, Peter. And this is why Paul's like, it's time to stand up. I'll get in your face, Peter. This is not okay. He confronts him. And why? That in Jerusalem, a Jewish city, where predominantly you're going to be around Jews, Paul comes in, and the apostles are all shaking his hand like, yeah, we're together. But now here we are in Antioch, a Gentile city, where the majority of the people are not going to be Jews. Peter comes in, and Paul's like, yeah, we're not shaking hands right now. I'm actually going to get in your face. This is not okay. Like, such a contrast. And why? Because the gospel was at stake. Because this was an affront to the gospel itself and what Peter was doing. And so Paul thought it worthy to stand up. And so what, what really led to this? It was the whole, like, oh, I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles, which goes back to the ceremonial, clean, unclean, all of those dietary laws and all that stuff. And so we have to beg the question, okay, what's really behind that? Why would God give us these weird laws in the Old Testament that we all get into debates about, like, which ones do we still have to follow and all this stuff? And, like, why in the first place, God? <laughs> what was so wrong with shellfish? Like, what, what is this? Like, what is going on? Why would God give laws that say you're clean if you do this or don't do this, you're unclean if you do this or don't do this? Like, what was that all about? The whole point of it was to show us that our sin must be dealt with to be in the presence of God, to be in a right relationship with him. Our sin must be dealt with. We are unclean. Paul emphatically makes the point throughout the New Testament, the whole point of the law was to show you you cannot keep it. It's like an x-ray machine to show you it's broke. But can the x-ray machine fix it? No. It just shows you it's broke. The law shows you something is broken here. You are unclean. Something is going to have to happen to make you clean. And so that is what this was about. We need something. We need someone to deal with our uncleanness, to make us clean so we can be right in the presence of God. And so knowing that, Jesus came as the one to make us clean. And now listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter seven. Um, I'll, I'll read it slowly so you can track along. Jesus, summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, meaning make him unclean, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And we're all running around with this paradigm that like, if I t 
touch something or get too close to something that's unclean, it may transmit, and I become unclean. Like, we've lived through a global pandemic for a couple years now. We get this. Like, social distance, man. So he's like, but here's the thing. That's not actually it. It's not what goes into a person from the outside that makes you unclean. It's what comes out from the inside. That's what defiles you. And so he continues on. He says, nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the thing that come out of a person are what defile him. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable because they were like, hey, that's like totally different than everything we've ever thought. He said to them, are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Biology lesson there for you from Jesus. Now listen to this parenthetical note he says here. Thus he declared all foods clean. So you think because you eat something outside of this prescribed diet that that's actually what makes you unclean? I don't know. It's all clean. Eat Eat it. Enjoy it. Have some barbecue. Enjoy it. That's not what makes you unclean. And he can say that because Jesus perfectly obeyed the law and then was the sacrifice that would save us and make us clean. That on the cross, Jesus, the one who knew no sin, became sin so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21, that there's this great exchange the reformers would talk about. That on the cross, Jesus actually imputed his righteousness, his cleanness to us and took our uncleanness on himself. He bore that on himself. And so he's saying, no, look, I have fulfilled the law. He has done it for us. He is perfect. He is the full and final sacrifice for us. So now we are freed from these laws and Jesus is saying, no, 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 like, it, that's done. So don't worry about those things anymore. Peter knew this. Peter actually got this, this this vision, uh, we don't know if it was a dream or a vision, but he has this vision where there's a sheet coming down, like it's pretty wild, like I don't even have vivid dreams like this, but like he's got birds like carrying down, like this sheet comes down and it's got like a whole barbecue smorgasbord, like it's, it's like everything you can imagine that he's not allowed to eat. And he's like, Ugh. and he hears the voice like, eat, kill and eat. He's like, but I've, I've never contaminated myself, I have not defiled. He's like, don't you remember Mark 7, Peter? You were there for that conversation. And Jesus emphatically makes it clear to him, no, 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 no. Like you're in a Gentile's house right now. Actually, he's on the roof having this weird midday nap kind of thing. It's like, go eat with him. Go eat with the Gentile. Peter knows that this law is no longer binding on him. He has been freed in Jesus. And yet now he's acting in hypocrisy. And so if our hypocrisy is that damaging that it's actually compromising the message of the gospel and it's possibly leading people astray and God knows, like, we hear it now. When people get really passionate about something, like, how many of us are content to say, like, this, this is me? Like, no. We want everybody to know. We want to sway as many people as we can. Like, you need to know I took a stand on this and, and I'm emphatic about it. And like, we want people to come with us on things and sometimes there's a good thing behind that. Like, it, sometimes it's good to do that and many times it's not because it's just divisive and unnecessary. But it can become contagious. And so that's why, again, back to last week, it is so important that we are a community centered on the gospel. The gospel is the thing that we will take our stand on. 
And anything that would divide us outside of that, man, we can talk about it. We can have genuine dialogue in love and grace. But we don't compromise on the gospel because that's the thing that holds us together. And so Paul says, no, I'll stand up. I'll get in your face. And so verse 14. Oh, Paul's back here. Verse 14 it says, but when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas, Peter, in front of everyone, like this is in front of people, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Huh. So Peter, and we get back to the heart argument throughout this letter. There are people trying to distort the gospel by adding to it these requirements from the law. Well, you need to be circumcised. You need to obey this feast or this, this festival day, this whatever it is. They're adding in things that they're like, oh, we can point to Old Testament scripture. It's like, you gotta do that. Like, no, the gospel is that Christ has done it for us and now we're free in him. Don't add to the gospel. And so we get to this and Peter stands condemned. As Paul confronts him in front of everyone, he's like, look, you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile. You love barbecue, Peter. You used to hang out with all the Gentiles. It was all great. You had a special revelation from God himself on Cornelius' roof. You know. You know the truth, brother. You know the truth of the gospel. But now you're acting like a hypocrite here, leading others astray. And so in front of everyone, how can you, who's a Jew who lives like a Gentile, now expect the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's jacked up. Don't add to the gospel. And so he confronts him. This is beautiful for us to see because we cannot add to the gospel. When we do, we're actually endangering the work of the gospel itself in our lives that we were freed by Jesus and yet we sometimes slip into trying to put each other into bondage under the law. When Jesus died, having fulfilled the whole law, saying you're free, now out of love you obey and delight in him. And life will change, absolutely. But that didn't bring you into a right relationship with God. Jesus did. So we cannot, we cannot move from that. We cannot, we cannot back down from those confrontations. It's worth standing up. It's worth getting in the face of the guy who looks like the strongest leader of the whole movement. And saying, no, that's not okay, Peter. So, the law shows us our sin must be cleansed and the gospel is worth confrontation. When you think about the gospel, that this is God confronting us in our sin. What did that look like? So you want to confront some people about your opinion or belief or whatever it is. Any confrontation with your spouse, with your children, with your coworker, with your boss, with anyone, any confrontation that you step into, think about the gospel. How did God confront us? Who is perfect. He is holy. He is without flaw. He is never wrong. And yet when he confronted us, when we were absolutely wrong, how did he confront us? In grace. In love. Undeserved favor. That he came and literally loved us to death in confronting us in our sin. Offering us freedom, forgiveness, life everlasting to eternally enjoy him as we were designed to in the beginning. That's how he confronts us. So Christian, can we confront each other in a similar way? 
I think we can. Um, the reason we can do that is um, as, as we look at the, the, the kind of root of what drove Peter to such antithetical, like just, just such crazy stuff, so contrary to the gospel, we, we look back and say, what was it? It was fear of the, uncircumcision, or of the circumcision party. That these guys show up from Jerusalem from James. They're Jews who know the law. Peter goes from, oh, I'm with the Gentiles, to, oh, some more Orthodox Jews are here. Oh, I'm going to kind of side over here for a second. Why? Because it says, for fear of them. And isn't that driving so many of us back into legalism? That fear. I don't feel like I'm enough. Like I hear him preaching the gospel all the time. It's only by grace through faith, but man, I screw up so much. I, I, I fumbled this week. I'm, I'm awful. I'm terrible. And I think that fear creeps in. We think I got to do better. I got to pull myself together here. And what are we doing? We're strapping the law back on with all of its condemnation. Because fear, we go back to the law. Fear pushes us back to the law. But what does John say in one of his epistles about love? It drives out fear. So you have this war of like our guilt and self-condemnation because we're no longer condemned. Jesus took our condemnation, but we put that on ourselves and we allow others who are acting hypocritically to put that on us and we start to, in fear, run back to the law. They're like, oh, I've got to figure this out. I've got to work. I've got to do better. I've got to do better. I've got to do better. And the love of God is saying, no, no. I've already done it all for you. I have freed you. So live in light of that freedom. And it's actually there that you'll overcome all of that sin because you're no longer a slave to sin, but you're a slave to righteousness. But you don't get that obedience as a slave of righteousness by trying to just buckle down and like fight harder against all this stuff in the law. No, you see the freedom that God has bought for you. And you live in that. You see the way that God sees you. That's how you can confront each other in a way that leads to actual reconciliation and redemption. Do you know that Peter and Paul had this like, kind of like weird third-hand correspondence throughout their letters where they'd reference each other? Like they loved each other. This was not the end of their relationship. This was a necessary brotherly love moment where Paul said, Peter, no, man, that's not right. You know that's not right. It was not the end. It was not about Peter saying, or Paul saying, I'm gonna be right in this. I'm, watch, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dominate him in this argument. No, the whole aim was reconciliation, was redemption. It was restoration so that Peter would not stay stuck in this wrong place. And so how does he do that? How can we do that? And we see that what's driving so much of us in like faulty confrontation is again that fear and what we want in that fear is approval. To gain the approval of God instead of just receiving it freely in grace. Or to gain the approval of others. How much do we love confrontation on social media? We will voice so many things that we would never say out loud in a room like this. But if we're behind a screen, <laughs> I'm a champ. Why? Because of fear. And because I want the approval of others. Join me in this. Reaffirm me in my position. All these things, what should be the aim? Redemption. Let's see awful things be redeemed. Let's see us reconciled to each other. Let's see love abound. Let's see those things. But if we're seeking the approval of others, 
We're seeking the approval of God through obedience to the law. You're never going to find it fully. But if you can see that you already have the full approval of God because of Jesus, that he died for us, the perfect sacrifice, and he calls us friends. He loves us and invites us into full forgiveness and freedom, life with him forever. We have the approval of God. Why do we need the approval of anyone else? So that's how you can enter into confrontation in a way that is healthy and helpful. Is look at what, what's actually driving me in this. Am I after self-righteousness that I just want to prove that I'm right? And I want other people to affirm me in that? Or do I actually really just in love want people to see what is true here? And so I can come in with grace and invite people into that. That has to be our heart. The way in which God confronted us is how we ought to confront each other and see, like, I know that is not easy. <laughs> I know. But when we see the way that God has loved us and confronted us in our sin, that vertical reception of love from him can overflow horizontally in love and grace towards others. We can confront people in a way like Paul. We will not compromise on the gospel, but we can confront each other in love and see that this is actually about restoration. It's reconciliation. The aim is reconciliation, not me just proving I'm right. So let that be our hearts. Controversy and conflict are both essential and deadly. On the one hand, we have to contend for the truth. If we do not contend for the truth, then we will lose the truth. So contend for the faith, as Jude said. Be willing to step up into controversy, into conflict, into confrontation, but know that this can destroy and divide if the aim is not redemptive. Let's not be divisive, people. Let's be people of love. Even if we disagree, there's a way in which we can talk with each other and love each other and seek redemptive outcomes, not division, not self-righteousness. I, I knew it. I was right all along. Proved it. No. The hope should be love. But, so what's the aim in confronting? It's either submission to the real truth and note here in the context of what is actually Paul's defense here. Paul just confronted Peter, who was like lead guy at the time. Paul, last apostle, just confronted Peter, part of Jesus' inner circle. The one who Jesus, after Peter had denied him three times, took a walk on a beach and three times restored him. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Hey, I'm restoring you back to ministry. Leave this. Lead this, Peter. Run with it. Don't run away back to fishing. Lead this. But now here's Paul confronting Peter. And Peter submits that even the apostles, whom we have the authoritative gospel accounts, even the apostles would submit to the gospel itself. So Paul's argument, this is reliable. Do not change it. We don't even change it as the apostles. So we must aim for reconciliation in all of our confrontation. Will you pray with me? Father, I love you. God, I'm thankful. That's how you confronted us, as in grace, as your gospel, this good news, that we do not deserve your love and favor, and yet you give it freely. That's amazing. To God, in a time when there are so many people hurting in so many ways, 
And it is so easy to get just caught up in just how emotional and volatile everything is in the world around us. God, let us be calm. Let us be loving. Let us be patient. Let us know when there is an appropriate time to stand up and confront error, but to do so in a way that doesn't lead to division, but instead leads to restoration, to reconciliation. Because that's what you have done for us. That you confronted us when we were dead in our sin and love. You died for us, Jesus. So you will forevermore deserve our praise. And so we now sing to you, thanking you and praising you because you're glorious. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name.